0: Morning, church family. It is uh, good to be with you. Um, I have the privilege of opening God's word for us and reading our passage. Before that, would you pray with me? Gracious God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. Uh, reading today comes the book of Philemon. So would you please listen to God's word? Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Ophia our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could have take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a great room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Steve. Um, Well... If you came today with reading an entire book of the Bible in one sitting, still open on your bingo card, congratulations. You can mark that off. Why Lehman today, you are probably asking. We just wrapped up a three-month journey through the book of Colossians, which was a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in the ancient city of Colossae. And if you were with us last week and listening closely to Mike's teaching in that sermon that wrapped up our time in Colossians, you may have heard some familiar names from last week's passage and what Steve just read in the letter to Philemon. That's because our text today, it relates to Colossians by describing and speaking into a real life and quite messy situation in the church of Colossae. So specifically, Philemon builds on and fleshes out the realities of the household codes that we find in Colossians chapter 3. You may remember that in Colossians 3, Paul crafts a new household code, a way of being for the family of God in Colossae. And here in Philemon... We see that worked out, not just in the abstract, but in a very practical case study. If you missed that sermon on Colossians 3 back on November 5th, I encourage you, go back and listen. It's very worth it and very helpful as Mike walked us through exactly what it is Paul is trying to do in creating this new household code. So today, we're going to work our way through this very brief and very personal letter from Paul, starting with the background. Sometimes the Bible gets a bad rap as irrelevant, out of touch with real life. And I have to say, the letter of Philemon is about as earthy and real life as it gets. Because it deals with controversy, relational difficulties, and real rubber meets the road, practical outworking of the Christian faith. It's like watching an episode of the real world Colossae. (laughs) Part of the real world in Colossae. Was slavery. Slavery was a fundamental reality of life in the Roman Empire. In fact, some estimates are that up to a third of those living throughout the Roman Empire were slaves. So I'm not going to go much into today and spend much time on the ways in which the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire differs from what we experienced in the earliest days of America. If you want some really good background info on that, Um, Be sure to revisit the home group study number eight from this fall. We still have some of those Colossians home group studies, and now they're rare and in mint condition. So for a nominal fee, we would be happy to get you one. But some key distinctions I do want to highlight between slavery in the Roman Empire and what happened in the earliest days of America. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on race. And it was rarely generational. In fact, it was not uncommon for someone in the Roman Empire to willingly enter into slavery in order to pay off a debt. And therefore, slaves lived and worked with the hope and expectation of earning their freedom, which was not that uncommon. So slavery was deeply embedded in the life of the Roman Empire and the world that the New Testament spoke into. And so therefore, it really should come as no surprise to us that slavery was also reality within the newly birthed early church as well. Now, this matters because the letter of Philemon revolves around two figures. The first is Philemon, a Christian slave owner living in Colossae. And the other is Onesimus, a slave who has run away from Philemon. And as this letter makes clear, while Onesimus was on the run, he encountered the apostle Paul. And through Paul's ministry, he became a believer in Jesus, verse ten reminds us that that's exactly what had happened. So now this presents a, a challenge to the earliest Christian community in Colossae. It's going to be a challenge of what the society expects and what the new household code of the family of God might call for. Onesimus's situation presents a unique test case for this new Christian community. And so David Garland says this, a captured runaway in the first century could expect to receive anything from a brutal flogging to branding, from being sold to work on a farm to being sold to work in the galleys or mines, from crucifixion to being thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. He might also be compelled to wear an iron collar engraved with the name and address of the owner and the command, Catch me, for I have fled my master." This would have been the common expectation of the church in Colossae for how the response to Onesimus' situation ought to play out. Most of the Christian community in Colossae would have expected Paul to respond like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Okay, so it's been 30 years since The Fugitive came out. Um, so you might benefit from a reminder. Listen up, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Our fugitive has been on the run for 90 minutes. Average foot speed over uneven ground barring injuries, is four miles an hour. That gives us a radius of six miles. What I want out of each and every one of you is a hard target search of every gas station, residence,
1: warehouse, farmhouse, henhouse, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. Checkpoints go up at 15 miles. Your fugitive's name is Onesimus. Go get him. Go get him. That's the expectation that would have been rampant in Colossae, which brings us to the bombshell, because the shock of this letter comes in verses 10 through 18. And I want to draw attention to a few significant aspects Of that section. First, notice the deep affection with which Paul talks about Onesimus. So in verse 10, he calls him my son. In verse 12, he says, He is my very heart. Somehow, Onesimus had become very dear to Paul during Paul's imprisonment. Now in verse 11, Paul uses a profound play on words that won't be immediately evident to any of us because the name Onesimus is taken from a Greek root that means useful. And Paul leverages this as much as possible when he tells Philemon, in verse 11, would you look at it again, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful, both to you and to me. And later, Paul explains that Onesimus has done for him what Philemon himself would undoubtedly have wanted to do if he could have. So look at verse 13. Paul says, I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. And yet, despite Onesimus' track record of usefulness to Paul, in verse 12, he tells Philemon, I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Friends, this is not a foregone conclusion. Paul could have done any number of things at this point. The apostle could have decided that Philemon's wishes or even his societal rights were overruled by Onesimus' usefulness to Paul in his, you know, being an apostle and all. The apostle could have kept Onesimus with him on theological grounds, shots fired against the institution of slavery. The apostle could have sent Onesimus back to Colossae, but not to Philemon's household. The apostle could have sent Onesimus to nearby Ephesus to craft a new life of faithfulness there to Timothy and the fledgling church in that city. And yet what Paul does in verses 12 through 17 is more subversive than any of those options. You may remember from the end of Colossians that we read that Paul sent Onesimus back to Colossae with the letter to the church in hand. Now, all that remains is what kind of response Paul would sanction. So I want you to imagine yourself for just a moment, average Sunday morning in Colossae, and you've come to gather with your church. And excitement is high because there's news of a recent letter from Paul himself. When in walks Tychicus, but also Onesimus, that notorious runaway slave, who happens to be holding the very letter you've been excited to hear. And you can't help but glance over at Philemon, because everyone knows how Onesimus fled, and everyone wonders how he'll respond. And when Tychicus begins to read the letter, it becomes clear that Paul is writing directly to Philemon about this whole situation. And then you hear, I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. With these stunning words, Paul recasts vision for life together in Christ. And he challenges Philemon to respond according to the truths of the gospel. Notice that for Paul, siblinghood in Christ wins out over every other identity marker. With this master stroke of spiritual leadership, Paul gives real-life credence to the claim he made in Colossians 3.11 that here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And let's be really honest for a moment. That's easy enough to mentally agree to in the abstract, But one's commitment to such a thing will be profoundly put to the test when a runaway slave walks back into the room. And yet Paul's message is crystal clear. Before, Onesimus had belonged to Philemon. But now, in Christ, Philemon and Onesimus belong to one another. Now, we may wish that Paul had done more to overthrow the evils of slavery In his original context, what he did was already pretty revolutionary. And he did it with a grace and a gentleness that could only be credited to the Holy Spirit's work within him. Did you notice how seemingly at every turn, Paul went out of his way to downplay his own authority, his own status as an apostle, and instead to affirm Philemon's status? So verse 1, he calls Philemon his fellow worker. Verses 5 and 6, he affirms Philemon's faith, his faithfulness, and his partnership. In verse 7 and verse 20, he calls him brother. Verses 8 and 9, he refuses coercion and compels out of love instead. In verse 14, he acknowledges Philemon's rights. And in verse 17, he again calls him a partner in the gospel. It's significant that this is one of the few letters in the New Testament that Paul doesn't open by referring to himself as an apostle. Instead, he chooses the title, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And throughout the letter, Paul employs reminders of relationship instead of playing his apostolic authority card. Even though, as he says in verse 8, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, he chooses instead a very different approach. It reminds me of a story I once read about this guy. So this is Bobby Cox, He was the longtime manager of the Atlanta Braves. He was a Major League Baseball manager for 29 seasons. In addition to being very successful, he also holds the record, as this picture suggests, for being ejected from more games than any other manager in baseball history. 162 career ejections. That's literally a full season's worth of games. That's really outstanding. (laughs) So Suffice to say, his temper was well-known. And I ran across this story once in Sports Illustrated, and it said there once was a young Atlanta pitcher named Mike Stanton who failed to hold a lead against the Cardinals. A hitter tapped the ball toward first, but Stanton hesitated for an instant before racing to cover the base. The hitter beat out a single. The Cardinals scored a run, and Stanton knew he had lost his team the game. When Cox called him into the office that night, Stanton braced himself for a violent tirade. Cox was silent. He shuffled some papers on his desk. He sighed a few times. Finally, he said, We can't have that. That was all. We can't have that. Stanton didn't sleep that night. It was as if he had disappointed his father. Bobby Cox never called Mike Stanton into the office again, and for the rest of his seven seasons with the Braves, Stanton was never again beaten to the bag on a grounder to first. Friends, we can't grasp the truly subversive beauty of Paul's leadership here in Philemon unless we recognize that he could have simply thrown down the gauntlet of apostolic authority and made Philemon comply. And he chose instead the equivalent of, we can't have that. And in so doing, he invited both Philemon and Onesimus, as well as the church watching their story unfold, into the bigger story. Because what we see in Philemon is simply the practical outworking of the larger story of humanity that we find in Scripture. So way back in Genesis, we find the origin story of all humanity. And if you were to go home and read Genesis 1 and 2 this afternoon, you would read over and over that God saw what he had created and called it good. And that would be a resounding theme until you got to Genesis 2.18 when God himself declares it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Hebrew term translated helper is etzer. It isn't a term of inferiority, as we might imagine. This word is actually used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself and can even be used in ways very similar to warrior. And the term suitable is the Hebrew term konegdo, and it literally means something like corresponding opposite. So with these two words, God paints a picture of radical unity in diversity as he creates woman, as the man's distinct and yet equal co-warrior, co-regent, co-steward over all creation, which means it is not too much to say that diversity expressed in mutuality is the high point of all of God's creative works in Genesis 1 and 2. But if you've read the story, you know that that mutuality is brief. And in Genesis 3, we see that the consequences of their sin include hostility, tension, and disunity between the man and the woman. Now, those who were meant to fight back to back against the chaos turn and fight against one another instead. And so much of the story of humanity from Genesis 3 on puts this disunity on repeat. War, strife, violence, hostility, generation after generation betrays sin's destructive power to make enemies out of those God created as equals. And then along comes one who elected unity and identification despite his unequal status. Friends, think about it. Jesus had very little in common with us in eternity past. Not yet human, perfectly holy, And yet, he drew near to those who had declared themselves enemies to achieve an unlikely unity. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus holds out unity as one distinct marker of a people belonging to God. So in the prayer he prayed before enduring the cross, Jesus prayed for his future disciples. And he said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In this final prayer before he went to the cross, Jesus could have prayed for anything at all, He prayed for unity among the people of God as a pointer to the glory of God. The radical reordering of human relationships that takes place in the body of Christ uniquely speaks of God's glory. Friends, in a deeply divided world, in which everything within us wants to draw tighter lines of belonging, to curate our circles with only increasingly like-minded people, to categorize and criticize, to call out and cancel those who don't share our views. Jesus pled with the Father that the church would be a place of radical unity, unity that could only be attributed to the movement of God by the Spirit of God for the validation of the mission of God to the glory of God. This has bigger implications than we even typically dare imagine. So, in the book of Ephesians, Paul indicates that the unity of the church, God's reconciling power that brings disparates and even enemies together as family, it declares God's glory throughout the cosmos. So, he writes, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. He's telling a story of unity. And then he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. For which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I'm not sure what all kind of situation is going on in the heavenly realms, but in these verses, Paul insists that the church's unity the church's story of unlikely people brought together in unity in Christ, it puts the entire cosmos on notice that God is at the wheel. And it shames all other claims to cosmic glory. So in light of this larger story of the Bible, it becomes clear that what Paul lays before Philemon is a profoundly gospel-saturated invitation. I am sending him back to you, no longer as a slave but better than a slave as a dear brother. And the choice before Philemon is to play a small part in declaring the glory and honor of God throughout the cosmos or to live for the lesser story of his own glory and honor in Colossae. And at this point, you're probably thinking, this is really great historical background, but why does this matter to me? And so I want us to spend the next few final minutes considering the blessing and the burden. Because I think it's okay to wonder how a letter like Philemon that is so bound to a specific situation in a specific setting is worth our attention in our very different setting, facing very different situations. I mean, how does Philemon possibly matter to us today in a setting without runaway slaves? Glad you asked. I know that many of us myself included, would have liked to see Paul bring all of his impressive theological skills to bear more directly on the evil institution of slavery. But I wonder if the way of subtle, faithful, unwavering gospel persuasion doesn't issue a more compelling invitation to stubborn hearts. R.C. Lucas puts it this way, a burning appeal to an unknown house church in the region of Phrygia is his way to begin to change the world. It is decidedly less impressive than a grand pronouncement of an ideal to a wider audience. But long after such rhetoric would be forgotten, and its life is conspicuously short, the influence of a letter like this would spread from life to life, and from group to group, in the Lycus Valley, and wherever its inhabitants journeyed. As I pondered this text this week, it struck me that a direct assault on the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire would have been welcome, and it may have led to a much more timely overthrow of that inhumane system of degradation and dehumanization, and then it probably would have stopped there. But what Paul did here in Philemon actually continues to expose every kind of injustice in ways that unsettle my own heart almost 2,000 years later. Friends, we have to see that though the specifics of our context have changed, Philemon's choice nonetheless remains one we face each and every day. Philemon faced a dilemma of perspective. Who do you see when Onesimus walks in the room? And it's a dilemma that I face as well. Who do I view through lenses other than the ones given me in the gospel? And when we recognize the ways in which we are tempted to divide rather than unite, the letter to Philemon forces upon us urgent and unavoidable questions. Will we live and strive and fight for unity that sees one another first and foremost as beloved siblings in the Lord, or will we settle for lesser identity categories? Will we opt for our own comfort and honor, or will we go out of our way to dignify and show honor to our siblings in Christ? Paul speaks bluntly about such perspective in another letter to another group of early Christians, this time in the ancient city of Corinth. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The mandate of Philemon is to ask if we truly believe that the old has gone and the new is here. That the one that we once assessed only as runaway slave, or unthinking party line voter, or sexual deviant, or secular hedonist can truly be in Christ, my dear sibling. In our age of polarization, cancellation, and relational fracture, the church alone has compelling reason and sufficient fuel to refuse to regard one another from a worldly point of view and instead to chart a different path marked by unity, dignity, honor, and enduring siblingship. And I simply want to ask us this morning, what if... What if this increasingly described the community of people that God has brought together at Santa Barbara Community Church? A group of disparates with enough in common in Christ to offer dignity, honor, and family to one another. I believe such a thing would tell our world a better and nearly irresistible story about the grace and the glory of God. What if, in the church, siblings in Christ could say to one another, though much about us is distinct, and our enemy would love to use that to get us to fight against one another? You are my dear sibling in Christ, and I will fight beside you. And claim the words of the great poet, I had the time of my life fighting dragons with you. I'm not sure what is stirring in your heart. Perhaps it's the unshakable image of someone in your spiritual family that you haven't actually treated as family. Perhaps it's instances of living for your own comfort and your own glory rather than God's glory. Or perhaps it's something else altogether. I don't know what this text is prompting, but I trust that the Spirit wants to speak through this word, this still living and active word. And so I'm going to give us a time of silence to dare to ask the Spirit of God, what would you have me pay attention to? What might you want to do in and through me because of what you've recorded here? So let's take some time in silence. Well, no matter what you heard from the Spirit, the call before each of us today is to walk in the way of Jesus, the one who calls us his own dear siblings and who already conquered the dragon on our behalf. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. At this table, week by week, we tell the story of our faithful older brother who offered up his life to unite a family. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we take bread, and we remember that Jesus offered up his body as a sacrifice. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we take that bread, and we dip it in wine, and we remember that Jesus poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins and to make us family. And whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you are one of the beloved siblings of Christ, you're invited to our family meal. Come and thank God for the grace he's shown you in Christ and ask God for the grace that you still need to live out God's heart for redemption and restoration in all things. We'll have prayer teams on either side as well as in the back to pray with us about these things or anything at all as we continue in our worship.